0: Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to, and the good, the bad, the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. Science! 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 <laughs> I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson of the University of Tennessee.
1: I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa.
0: I'm Dr. Sarah Woods, UT Southwestern Medical Center. Today, Jacob is going to bring us something that no one in the world has ever seen before in pop and
1: culture. <laughs> the expectations just keep getting higher and higher for me. Do they? Yeah. Do they?
0: Oh, geez, didn't notice. Then, in the academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Stay to Myself activation and avoidance of assistance from kin. Then in good or bad advice, we are going to discuss how to effectively maintain sibling relationships in adulthood. Something I can definitely relate to, yeah. If you have any advice that you would like us to talk about, send it to us. You can leave us a phone message, On your rotary dial at 865-229-6775. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Or get at us on social media at (laughs) attachedpodcast. Pronounced attached with an English accent. fancy. Attached. Attached. Very fancy. (laughs) Or just go to our website, attachedpodcast.com. You can send us a message there. And you can also check out our merchandise, which is very, very exciting. Also, please consider being a member of Attached, being a Patreon to our Attached team here by going to patreon.com slash attached podcast, become a member, and eventually one day we will give you more episodes once we reach our target number. But before we get to all of that... How are you all doing?
1: Pretty good. I never really thought the idea of keeping up with the Joneses was a thing. Really? But I feel like I'm experiencing that in my mid adulthood. Am I considered like mid adulthood developmentally? And it's, I think it's probably a good keeping up with the Joneses. So my neighbors across the street, they are super like, how do I want to say this, like naturey people? So they work at like this really cool nature center here in Cedar Rapids. And so they've like turned their front yard into like this rain garden. Amazing. They put solar panels on their house. Ooh. And so like, I've decided that I'm going to try and plant a wildflower garden.
2: Ooh. Okay.
1: Yeah, I don't know how it's gonna go because I don't have the greenest thumb of sorts.
0: But wildflowers, <laughs> can't you just like throw a pack of seeds of
1: wildflower and there's your garden? Yeah, I think so. Like I ordered the seeds to try to yeah. do that, but like, I don't know. I I don't, I'm very apprehensive that I might try and it may not work.
0: Jacob, I'd like to reframe this for you real oh, quick. Rather you. than keeping up with the Joneses, what about just being inspired?
1: Oh, that's probably a better. That's probably. Why did you ever stop doing therapy, Patricia? You're just like a natural at it.
0: And that's probably like the only good thing I've ever given anybody in the past ten years.
1: <laughs> Not keeping up with the challenges, be inspired by your neighbors. So I'm really hoping that that it works, but I have no idea because the only thing that has grown in our yard is stuff that was planted <laughs> by the people who lived here previously, mm. and everything we've planted. I mean, it's kind of stuck around, but it hasn't gotten any bigger. So we'll see if
2: how it goes. Meanwhile, as an actual practicing therapist, my only question was, where are you going to throw the seeds? (laughs) (laughs) Good follow
0: up. It was a good follow up. Where are you going to throw the seeds?
1: So in our front yard, we have like this patch that's cut out of our grass that the old the old people, the people that owned our house previously had like cut out and then had planted some really weird stuff in there and it never really took off the way we wanted it to. So I'm going to take all that out. And then I bought some seeds that are specific to Iowa. They were called the Iowa mix because, you know, Iowa's special. And then I'm going to put them in there and hope I think I actually have to cold do something, get, make them cold first, because typically the seeds are planted in the fall. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how to make this work for real. So if there's any listeners out there who know, more about planting a wildflower garden than I do, please shoot us a message because I really want to make it work.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes. He needs a whole video YouTube
1: tutorial. I've tried to look at some. They haven't been the most helpful yet, but I think it'll be more helpful when I actually have the seeds.
2: I think step one is take your seeds out of the freezer <laughs> and, then, and then let them get back to normal temperature. No, I'm, I not, I'm
1: not certain. I but. think you're supposed to like, I, I don't know. I'm going to look up this phrase. I don't know. It's like cold germinator something like that i don't know if that's a thing but you let us know how it goes i will we're
0: enthusiastic
1: well i'll I'll let you know
0: woods speaking of an unsuccessful gardener (laughs) (laughs) uh,
2: the evolution that started as my doomsday planting seeds i think maybe a third of them got out of the initial pods well they're all dead but i decided to try to reuse some of that dirt to stick new seeds in. (laughs) which is i'm pretty sure how that works so instead i've just I I bought a bunch of cucumbers, actually my dad bought us a bunch of cucumbers way too many cucumbers than a small family could consume in the week before they go bad and so I'm just pretending I grew them and I started pickling them Mm. and it's amazing and I I feel like I really like pickles but I'm very very selective and so I definitely thought that maybe this would not go well it required a lot of ingredients that I did not possess like Mm. I mean, maybe a lot of people have coriander seeds. I'm, I don't even know what that is. It's like <laughs> cilantro seeds. Well, so I thought that, but why do we call them both? I, wait, I, wait, I, got I didn't confused. know that.
1: Coriander is the seeds for cilantro?
2: Well, you know how I know, because then I tried, I, I decided I was going to, try gardening again this weekend and I got cilantro seeds and they looked the same as the coriander seeds that I put in my pickles and then I was like I think those are those that were that we exchanged for I'm not sure why but the pickles were so amazing they were delicious and so I just am pretending that I grew them from my garden and were consuming them and then separately batch number two of seeds which in optimism I have written out all these cute little tags and put them
0: all in the dirt like for where the seeds will eventually come up. They won't, but... I love that technique. (laughs) My husband loves growing. I have no green thumb, but he has... A, an amazing green thumb so i benefit all from his work but for we've been married for 10 years maybe nine i don't remember anyway and consistently every single year i have said maybe we can put some labels on in the ground so we know what's growing mm. and what's what because mm-hmm. he'll do like several types of like peppers and lettuces and tomatoes and this and stuff and oh, i tried those <laughs> Yeah. But he All of he does not like to label them. It's like it's almost like he likes to oh, guess what they are yeah. when they come out How of the fun. ground.
2: Is How it? Fun. Well, nothing comes out of the ground for me, so <laughs> but I don't know. It sounds it
0: sounds fun. It's just stressful to me because mm. it's not organized. I remember when we first lived together with a yard. He was doing some stuff. I was, I said I would like the the backyard to be more organized. <laughs> 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 can we make some very neat paths to where the wee you know the grass doesn't go into this and he is not into that method of of gardening mm. so i've let that go as well anyway your pickling story reminded me that this weekend so occasionally when i if i pickle something what I do is I just make a brine and I stick it in the refrigerator. And then like as Mm -hmm. things ripen in the garden, I'll just throw it into the pickling mixture. Oh, wow. So it just stays pickled for a while. Like because for example, like if you want pickled okra, okra grows really weird. Like you can pick one or two okra a day every other day, but like there's not like a batch pick of okra. So I did that last year with some little itty bitty peppers i mean they were probably like a half an inch long ripe they're really really tiny really colorful like yellow orange and red they're really pretty so i just took a bunch and put them in there last year and i forgot about them and oh. my husband brought him out and like put them. it was in the middle of dinner and he just started eating them and i was like oh i guess i'll try one i said how are they are they uh? he said they're good so i picked one and i just took a, a whole pepper and okay. ate it <sighs> Oh my god, it was so spicy. So spicy. <laughs> they definitely needed to be mixed with something. I was like tearing up. I was like, "Oh." oh. They were good and, and and in fact, the brine worked because it preserved them for over a year, but that heat it also preserved that heat real good. <laughs> so, do not do that at home.
1: I think I need to step up my pickling game in that I don't have a pickling game at all. But I do like to play pickleball. Does that count? What in the world is pickleball? Oh, oh. this
2: feels like a Midwestern tradition we're about to
1: learn about. Uh, oh. I, I'm going to keep you in suspense because another day I'm going to talk to you all about the ins and outs <laughs> of pickleball and how you should all play it because it will change your life. Yay!
0: <laughs> First up, popping culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and our family, but as we know, a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for the first segment, we'd like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Low key, this is our opportunity to talk about TV and movies. So, Jacob, what do you have for us this week? I... I'm going to be honest, I fear for what you have for us this week.
1: I have been waiting to talk about this. Oh, my God. With bated breath to talk oh my. about. <laughs> Netflix reality series, Too Hot to Handle. Jeez. Now, and the crowd goes wild. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you about the premise of this show. So Netflix or whoever produced the show brought in like 12 singles who are notoriously known, that just seems redundant, who are known for <laughs> who are notoriously notorious. known notorious <laughs> for hooking up and not having deep, meaningful, romantic relationships. And so they invite all these people, they recruit them to be on this reality television show where they're going to go spend a summer on this beachside villa resort with other really attractive singles where they're just going to have all this opportunity to make out, have sex, hook up, and just have the best summer of their lives. But Woo, once, they, epic summer. once they get them there, no, oh, no they pull the old switcheroo what and they tell these singles that there's a hundred thousand dollar prize that they can win at the end but for every act of physical intimacy they are going to deduct money from the prize
0: so the stated oh, wow. goal is how much are they deducting are so, they making it actually worth it
1: yeah so like if you kiss somebody they take like away like three thousand dollars If you have sex with somebody, you know like depending on what you do, they're going to take Like a
2: sexual sticker chart. Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: (laughs) It's really it's really messed up. It's really, it's really ridiculous to watch. It's so bad, but it's, that makes it so good. But what I think, what I want our listeners to take away from this is not that I'm advocating that the best way to find love is to mm-hmm. restrict yourself sure. from sexual intimacy or that mm-hmm. going to a villa with 12 other really hot singles who all want to hook up with mm. each other but can't isn't going to help you find the love of your life. Well, one thing I do think is a redeeming quality of this show. Yes, go on. Yes, go on. Is that the attempt is present to help these people, because they're not allowed to have sex, to learn basic relationship skills, to learn how to go on a date where it doesn't involve
0: Ah. just hooking
1: up with somebody, to learn how to be able to trust and communicate with. Out sexual intimacy. I think that's important because it shows that people can actually learn how to be better in relationships. I'm not advocating for the techniques they bring on and what they use, but I think sure. if you listen to a podcast like Attached, you can learn mm. specific behaviors that can improve your relationship. So I think that oftentimes there's a lot of people who think that, you know, oh, I'm bad at relationships, I can never get better and I'm doomed to have failures of relationships forever. Research shows, clinical experience shows that that's not the case. There is science backed ways to improve your relationships. And Mm -hmm. by learning those, you can build a long lasting, resilient, connected relationship that can really be a healthy space. Now, I think Too Hot to Handle is trying to suggest this, but they're doing it in a way that's more for entertainment than, right, than actual science-backed ways to intervene. But I do think that, you know, because most of the people on this show are have either been hurt by past relationships, so they just go to this serial dating type of approach or have just never tried or invested into trying to be in real relationships, which I think is fine if that's what you want. But also it shows that many of these people people want to have long-term, committed, healthy relationships. They're just terrified of that fact. So don't take your lessons from Too Hot to Handle, but take the away the idea Good. that you can improve your relationship. You can build a healthy connection. You just have to put forth the effort.
0: Love it. I like that positive message. From Watch <laughs> Too
1: Hot to Handle just when you need some guilty <laughs> ridiculousness in your life. Yeah, I
2: really love that show. It's like got, it's got a lot of the messages jacob's talking about it's
1: really good <laughs> have you watched it no, no, no
2: of course i haven't no, um, no and
1: it was oh, like, like what has like, happened <laughs> it's, it's on that borderline of like acceptable television and porn like it's really Jeez. they are really walking a fine line there of, whoa like,
2: yeah so my, my my only follow-up question again to really highlight my therapy skills is how did they develop like the notoriety for being? I think your word was like promiscuous. Like, how did they have like a resume in that like vein, or like are they famous people?
1: Or? No, they're not. They might be Instagram, quasi Instagram famous people. Like oh. have a couple and you, uh, you know a couple hundred thousand an followers influencer. on Instagram. Influencer, influencer. But basically, it's just self-reported. <laughs> they're saying, okay. I hook okay. up with people okay. all the time." So. Sure that might not be the best way to measure that but I don't think observational methods curious. would would it was, it was something anybody wants to do Also
0: this wasn't a research study <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well they did they did want to do observational methods they filmed them right for like months Well
1: that's yeah exactly we, yeah that's true well like 6 weeks <laughs> I mean it's worth I think if you just want something to remind yourself how ridiculous people can be sometimes and watch it and then watch it gets better It's <laughs> yeah, well, Love for back. it yes exactly exactly
0: now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment and talk about an article titled stay to myself activation and avoidance of assistance from ken written by dr joan Mazalis at rutgers university camden and dr larissa mikaida at the Social, Economic, and Housing Statistics Division of the U.S. Census Bureau. Recently published in the Journal of Marriage and Family, these authors explored how low-income moms and dads with a new child either avoid or access support from their family. Sarah and I know, and Jacob soon, of course, will learn, social support from family is critical for new parents. Receiving support from family after the birth of a child may be especially necessary for financially disadvantaged parents. But even if these vulnerable new parents have access to help for family, they don't always access it. The authors explain that this may be due to the emphasis of personal responsibility in the U.S. In other words, our individualistic culture focuses on each person's responsibility to take care of themselves and be independent. And isn't that just echoed throughout our media and political spheres? This may become additionally tricky if disadvantaged parents believe they may need to repay the help they receive and are worried they may not be able to. It's harder to ask for help if we think we have to reciprocate, but know ahead of time we may not be able to. What's also important to know are the different kinds of support that researchers try to distinguish in families. For example, there's instrumental support, which is tangible assistance, including help with childcare, food, or housing, for example. And there is financial support within that, which is a type of instrumental support. And there is financial support within that and involves providing money to pay a bill to support them. These are different from emotional support, which is when people share empathy or concern and was not a focus of this project specifically. And these authors make a distinction that even people who desire to avoid help from family members may still activate it by taking it when it's offered. What we may think may also not always line up with how we act, even if we think we would ask for help do we always? Overall, these authors were curious about how low-income new parents decide to activate or avoid kin support and how they discuss these decisions. Why are moms and dads willing to accept help or why are they motivated for avoiding available support? And does what they say they will do line up with how they actually access family support? Question, Sarah. How did these research <laughs> searchers study these parents' use of support? family member support, and what did they find?
2: So I think it's really important to make sure we're clear about the definitions about their use of the terms like access or avoid. Yeah. So accessing help or activating available support might be taking assistance when it's offered or asking for and accepting help versus avoiding support, which is declining help that's offered or refusing to even ask for help. Mm, Okay. So I think that's important. So this is a qualitative study, and it was used secondary data. Meaning the authors themselves didn't collect this data. This is part of a sub-project of the Fragile Families and Child Well-Being Study. Mm. So the Fragile Family Study is a nationally representative sample, very well-known project, and it includes almost five thousand non-marital births across twenty cities from nineteen eighty-eight to two thousand. And this is a an affiliated sub-project that is called the Time Love and Cash Among Couples with Children study, or the TLC-3. And this study began in... I know! (laughs) This study began in 2000, and in over four waves, one each year, it was almost annual. It included qualitative data. So not only did these participants fill out the full Fragile Families survey, where they got to self-report a bunch of information, they also, a subset of them, participated in these extensive interviews that these authors then had access to, these transcripts of the interviews, and they coded. So this nationally representative sample is really really focused on serving financially disadvantaged families so in order to qualify to be a participant mom's income can't be greater than 75,000 and most of them had much less income only a third of them were married but they had to be romantically involved with their first child's father at the time of birth the father could not be incarcerated and their child their first child had to live with at least one of the parents okay. and they had to be English speaking so as part of this TLC 3 project they used stratified random sampling which is a really specific sample technique to make sure that they got very representative families from three cities, Chicago, Milwaukee, and New York, Finally, we have moved outside the Midwest for our data collection. <laughs> I mean, Chicago
0: and Milwaukee, I but know, sure, they're at I least cities. Know.
2: And I didn't know those three cities when I had chosen the paper, and I knew it was fragile families. And I was like, well, ha, 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 it won't be Iowa anymore. And then I got down to like the specific sample, the specific, sample. and I was like, are you kidding? Oh, New York. Okay, that counts. So they selected 25 couples or 50 parents to participate in what this is really cool both individual interviews with the moms and the dads, as well as couple interviews, wow. which is really really rare. It's not something we see very often in qualitative research. We usually do individual interviews or sometimes focus groups, groups, collections of individuals. But this used dyadic couple interviews, which is really cool. And they interviewed all, did all three of those interviews in each of the four waves, which means at the end they had 756 interviews total. Wow. I don't know how long this coding project took them. I think somewhere in there they say they have like, I think it's like four advanced undergraduates or something. I mean I, I can't imagine how much time that would take to code all of that, all of those transcripts. But they they were really specific about how they drilled down to find the data that might be applicable. So there are some example interview questions that focus on people, for example. Like, are there people you could ask for help? Or do you get any help with expenses from the people mm. you care about, etc.? So that they're not capturing governmental assistance. They're really capturing stories about who in your life helps you. Right. And also really cool is because these couples were embedded in this huge, fragile family, Study and had done all of these survey responses, they could contextualize any of that qualitative data with their survey responses just by linking their ID numbers across data collection. So they could see how they answered questions about financial support, for example, and whether that changed with time or whether their income changed with time, whether their marital status changed with time in ways that maybe the qualitative data wouldn't capture, which is really cool. And so what they found across all of these interviews that they coded, was that the participant, across these 50 parents, 25 couples, they reported quite a bit of family support. It was widespread. Most, although not all, participants reported that they perceived that help would be available from their family after they had their first child. So some themes that they found that I thought were really interesting, they found that a lot of these participants reported that their family understood that help was needed, and they often gave it in anticipation of those needs that were essentially unexpressed. These these family members would step in and just give money or pay a bill or move in to provide some child care Aww, support. I love that. Meaning that parents, these brand new parents, didn't need – to broach that difficult conversation and ask for help if they needed it. And so what they found was that these participants who kind of passively activated this support by taking it when it was offered often reported that that was a really positive experience for them, that they really appreciated it and they came to depend on it. But it was also really interesting that for some of these participants, they described that their family members gave less as time went on, right? So they have this as longitudinal qualitative data. So as their first child aged and grew up, Sometimes family members gave less as time went on, and those participants' hardship, their financial disadvantage, didn't necessarily decrease. So they probably could have still used help, but because their first child was no longer an infant, they tended to receive less of it. So even though there's quite a bit of availability of support reported by these participants, it was not universally activated. And this was for a few different reasons that you alluded to in the prior research you described, Patricia, Mm -hmm. that one of these issues is reciprocity. So this belief that help received means help owed. So I'm going to avoid asking for help because I may need to repay it and I might not have the means to do it. And that makes me really stressed and worried. So participants would say things like, I don't want to owe anybody anything. That's not. That's just not how this should work. I don't want to be indebted to people. On the flip side, what was really interesting is that although that reciprocity was a barrier for some people, in other ways they described it as something that might make them more comfortable to ask for help because the help would be mutual. Right. Meaning like if I need it and I don't have it, I can call one of my family members and they'll give it to me or vice versa. So if we have this this mutual agreement about how we're going to help each other, then I'm much more comfortable to ask you for help because I know. Oh, this is going to go back and forth. This is how we operate. So I think it's some norms about the back and forth. Even participants who accessed help from family often used a language of avoidance especially when it came to asking for help that's a huge barrier for people and these participants and there was a few reasons for that so aside from the reciprocity there was also this focus on I need to be an independent mm. grown up that yeah. I need to be able to do this on my own or this is kind of the this is what I expect of myself or this is just kind of the norms some of that appear to maybe fluctuate with time a little bit or that I might say I want to be independent and end up needing support or vice versa I might need support but never ask for it which could really be make me very vulnerable make my yeah. family very vulnerable and some of this had to do with pride too which may or may not be tied to some gender norms that they observe that for some of these couples women were more likely to ask for help whereas men were would not and you could see how that could maybe cause some issues within the couple that if if she's always having to ask for support or he's never willing to accept it you could maybe have some disagreements there between the two
0: or depending on whose family you're you're asking
2: Yes, that's definitely true depending on whether it's your immediate family, your in-laws, or how the two of you conceive, how you share those family members across your relationship. And although this sample is really specific in terms of how it's defined socioeconomically, I think there are some takeaways that I think even I resonate with as somebody who's not any longer a new parent, but remembers very intensely what it was like to be a very new parent. Yeah. That I think if you're a family member of someone who is going through something like a first birth, that it's important maybe to not wait for people that you love to ask for help. That was a huge barrier in this sample. And that for people whose family members just offered that help or just gave it, it was really positively received. Yeah, And they were pretty likely to take them up on it. I think even if that's the case if what we know from this study is generalizable if this happens across other families as well i think it could be helpful to maybe make some of those reciprocity ideas more explicit so if i'm giving somebody something and i do not want anybody to repay it being explicit about the norms of how those operate in your family yeah. but also when you give or receive support talking about those really more clearly i think that idea of we have a mutual relationship this is part of how we operate as family I'm to give to you you're going to give to me and back and forth but if if that's not how you already operate maybe making that more clear so people potentially lessening that expectation of i might owe you or i might repay you now i don't know i don't believe for all families talking about that out loud might mitigate all of that right. pressure
0: to repay i was um, just thinking if you're gonna say that you also have to mean it sh- oh yes you know Like I can see people saying it, but like harboring something internally. Like I feel like if you are going to make the point to say it, you have to mean it. Yes. I
2: have said to people before when I have done or given something, like I also know that sometimes there's an expectation to write like thank you cards. Please do not spend (laughs) energy writing a thank you card for this. Like this is, that would detract from my being able to be helpful. And I also think that some of these needs for help don't necessarily expire. So, and I think I was experiencing this, this like my own reflection about this takeaway not just necessarily to the birth of a first child although I definitely think there's lots of research to support that family members support around caregiving for children can be very helpful for well past the first year but I think even when there are other kinds of big life changes which we've talked before on this podcast about grief or loss or illness or other things that can really throw your family out of its norm the need for help may not expire after what we might otherwise consider like a socially acceptable time for that to be considered Right. Like a nodal important event. I'm thinking about the episode that we did on grief and that that, that isn't something that just expires after twelve weeks or two years or that people may need, need your support long past that.
0: Yeah, and the support might look different, right? Like with a newborn, the support might not look like childcare, the support might look more like financial or getting groceries, but you know, the support's gonna look different with someone with young, young school aged children, right? That is gonna look maybe more like helping our offering to take care of the, the child or or other things like that. So I like the idea of support not necessarily fading, but also maybe it changes too.
1: And I also like their use of the word kin, because oftentimes Mm -hmm. we just think about family as in people that we are related to by blood or marriage. But when in fact, I think, you know, like we're in the situation where I grew up in Utah and Chelsea grew up in Florida and our families are both there. So, you know, when our kid is born, we're going to have family come in, but they're not going to be able to provide the support on a regular basis that we're going to need. And so I, I even think, about talking, you know, in the previous podcast when we talked about maintaining adult friendships of how key that can be because yeah. we're going to have to rely on those that are close to us too for that support. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it may be easier to navigate those types of relationships than family relationships. But other times it may be more difficult because you may feel like, oh, I'm going to be uh-huh. placing a burden on my friends. But I think right. it's important to realize that most people, I think, in get a sense of satisfaction about being able to help and when they're asked and when they know how you would like them to help, that opens the gateway a little bit more. So I think it is important to activate help when possible, even though that might be intimidating.
0: Yeah, I like the term, the family we choose sometimes is mm-hmm. as, as fr- close friends who are helpful like that. It's a term frequently used in the LGBTQ population about the family we choose to call family and they can be supportive too. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice. We hear relationship advice from parents, families, friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read advice that is spewed at us on social media, blogs, and All of those numerous top 10 lists about how to be. But a lot of it just isn't actually good relationship advice. This is the part of the show when we use science to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about it, send it in. You can leave us a message at 865-229-6775. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Get at us on the social media at attachedpodcast. Or please, Please go to attachpodcast.com and send us a message while you're in this vast worldwide web space please like and subscribe to the podcast and also leave us a review if it's good also share it with your loved ones because you know You want them to be better too siblings are typically the longest relationships we have this is an excellent segue by the way but how do you keep these relationships healthy and not toxic through adulthood today we're going to discuss an article about that from readers digest which is I think we've covered Reader's Digest before, and I'm still just impressed that they're around. My memory of Reader's Digest if it is it being on my grandmother's toilet growing up. Oh, so exactly. Yes. 100%. Ditto. 100%. 100%. <laughs> yep, yep. But it's still around. So the article is called 11 Ways to co- Become BFFs ah, with your siblings as grownups. I'm not sure if that's the tone they use, but it's no, the tone yeah. I use It's definitely right. Everyone's friendships are different. <laughs> So this is a really long list. It's 11 of them. And we're only going to go through a couple of them. But I encourage you to check it out. I'm just going to like go full disclosure here. I really like this article. So we'll see what our experts have to say. Wow. No pressure now.
2: (laughs) Introducing the whole collection is good
0: advice. Yikes. (laughs) Oh, I might regret that. Here we go. Anyway, focus on the positive. It is all too easy to focus on your family members' negative traits, especially as your siblings' quirks that drove you up the wall when you were a kid likely still push your buttons now. Truth. I just added that. But while it (laughs) might... But while it might have felt impossible to ignore their loud chewing or pinch it for creating drama when you shared a bedroom, now as an adult, it's much easier to choose to forget the negative and focus on the positive. Good or bad advice?
1: I'm going to say bad advice. Oh. And the reason I'm going to say bad (laughs) advice is because I think that this focus on positivity can sometimes be detrimental. Right, we're kind of breaking this down into this idea that people either have good traits or bad traits, but yet, I don't think those traits- Oh, I see what you're are are necessarily that black and white. Some of our good traits can have side effects that can get kind of annoying. But I think better advice would be meet your siblings where they're at, understand who they are and accept that because hopefully they'll do the same for you. And I think that's the basis for authentic friendships and relationships. So for that reason, I'm saying bad advice.
0: Okay, Jacob, bad advice, Woods? I was going to say good advice.
2: He makes a good sell. I don't disagree with what he said. I really, I'm very opposed to toxic positivity and forcing a focus on positivity when that's not authentic. So I do agree with what Jacob says. I do think there is room sometimes to be more intentional in thinking about what we're grateful for or what we appreciate about somebody. I'm thinking about the research on like causal attributions when we think about when we make either positive yeah. attributions about a partner's behavior versus negative attribution and how when we ascribe really positive qualities of theirs to a positive behavior, it's much more relationship enhancing. Yeah. right. Positive so when intentions
0: behind their behavior. Yeah, yeah.
2: So like if my sibling does something nice for me. I think there is some cognitive shifts you could take to be thinking about how they do that because they are really generous. They really care about me. They go out of their way to show me that they love me and being intentional about thinking about those positive qualities and and kind of how we're grateful for them.
0: So, right. So I think the overall is that being positive is good, but maybe not that toxic positivity where maybe it does damage to you and yourself but maybe also not characterizing traits in a black and white manner where it's good or it's bad that everything exists on a continuum and also full disclosure jacobs meet them where they're at is a a piece of advice here too so i'm just gonna go ahead and think that you think that one's good advice as we get there
2: Well, and I think the, the opposite of like negative attributions, we can check that thinking too. Is is right that when they do something that is not so great, it's not that we need to ignore it. It's that rather than think that they, you know, that they didn't answer my call several times because they're just lazy jerks, right? That we could be thinking more contextually about maybe they're busy, maybe they're tired, maybe that's
0: a weird thing to be angry about because I never answer my phone, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> All right. Don't fall back into childhood roles. Birth order can play a huge part in shaking our personality, life, and relationships, though I think there's limited research. I just added that in. According to a large body of research. Oh, Jesus. But that doesn't mean you're stuck being the bossy first child what slander, the attention-seeking middle child, or the coddled youngest child forever. In fact, you should actively try to break out of those roles. Good or bad advice, Jacob?
1: So I'm gonna say good advice with the caveat you brought up. In what I know regarding this large body, body of research <laughs> that the author of this article is suggesting, it's really inconclusive and weak at best. You know, like I feel like this research comes back around every few years to say like, hey, your birth order matters, when in fact I think there's... There is a lot of other factors that contribute to personality, relationship style, than birth order. You know, we do think about the bossy first child, the middle attention-seeking child, and the coddled youngest child forever. But people in all, like, the the oldest child can be one attention, the youngest child can be bossy. You know, like, all of these things are not as pre-described by birth order. But So with that caveat aside, the reason why it's good advice is I think it is easy to fall into those old relationships and to relate with people in this way that you know how to relate with them. And while bringing that and building on that foundation can be good, you also need to understand that in adulthood, they are different than maybe they were your annoying little brother or sister that you couldn't stand. And seeing how not trying to fall in this role of like taking care of them, but meeting them again as an adult in these peer-to-peer relationships, I think is good advice. Nice.
2: Good advice. Woods? I agree. I think I have a similar reaction that Jacob is describing in terms of like birth order research is not very conclusive. And and there's probably listeners who would be surprised by that. But if you are somebody who believes that you fill the role that is typically ascribed to a person in your birth order, that is potentially anecdotal. (laughs) That is not necessarily something that is based in science. I just think it's a little bit more complicated than... this piece of advice is suggesting so to not fall back into childhood roles also suggests that there was some time or distance between childhood and adulthood during which these roles did not exist they hopefully evolve and mature and i think that that's really important but also i don't think it's just as quite as easy to be spending time with a sibling and want them to be your bff and then just kind of snap your fingers and decide not my childhood role today. I right. shan't be the bossy first child. Or as my youngest sibling would say, he is the golden child and he is interested in being that childhood role for life. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> So well, that just forces the rest of us to just work around it. <laughs>
0: So in general, good advice. And I really like what Sarah added that it's not easy to not fall back into those roles. And I would also give a gift to Jacob perhaps and say, I believe that this idea of falling into roles might be the crux
1: of differentiation. (laughs) <laughs> always trying to always try to throw fighting words out there, aren't you? I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> Alright, so good advice. Next, good fences, make good neighbors, and siblings. The key to establishing good relationships as adults, especially with siblings, you may have had a rocky relationship in the past, is to make good clear boundaries. That advice goes on, but that's kind of like the crooks of it that Doctor Sanok says.
1: I'm gonna say good advice, and I'm actually going to emphasize the sentence after what you read because I think it's it kind of drives this home. To do this, know what you need and what you want from the relationship. Identify your own personal triggers and come up with a list of non-negotiable rules. If there's been a rocky relationship, I think. Maybe sitting down and writing down this list of non-negotiable rules could be fine. But I think in most sibling relationships, it's just this is kind of how you navigate adulthood, I think, of kind of learning your own rules and boundaries. So I don't think you necessarily need to sit down and make a list for every relationship. If you're like me and you have five siblings, (laughs) that could be a quite exhaustive list. But I do think setting clear boundaries, knowing what those are, is a marker of most healthy relationships. If it has been a rocky one in the past, good advice to potentially be more structured. But if it's been a good relationship and pretty fluid, I think you can also expect those fluid boundaries to continue and just make sure you have that continued open communication to maintain those boundaries. So good advice.
0: Good advice. Woods? I'm going to say bad advice. I think it's
2: kind of junk. (laughs) I am all about good clear boundaries. There is maybe nothing that I share more as unsolicited advice of people that they should probably develop some semblance of boundaries or shape and shift the boundaries they have. This description of good fences make good neighbors and the rest of the description that Jacob alluded to sounds more like real rigidity to me.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Fences are not flexible. Fences don't evolve and grow with time. Fences are required by your HOA. (laughs) Uh, It's not.
1: That's fair. That's like...
2: It's not a healthy, adaptable way of living to have non-negotiable rules and to have identified all your personal triggers and then go into those relationships and, and think that like, oh, these are the boundaries I have personally and they shan't be violated in order to be BFFs I think that it's much more likely that you're gonna have things that make you uncomfortable or things that maybe a sibling is gonna do or buttons are gonna push that you're not okay with whether or not that comes from your childhood role and I think it's maybe good practice for you to set boundaries in the moment also and be willing to have some of those conversations about I didn't really like that what happened before maybe we could talk about that or eek I think we've come up
0: against something I'm not really comfortable with so let's shut it down for the time being. So it sounds like a little bit of fence sitting, if I may. I I like the idea of what Jacob was saying about, particularly if there was conflictual roles in the past, being very clear about those boundaries. But I like the idea that it it does in fact need to be fluid and and flexible in order for those boundaries to be good. So a little bit of fence sitting, but in general, I think we agree that boundaries are good. Oh, yes. Yes. All right. Last, but certainly not, not least, time is the best Gift. In our busy world, time truly is our most valuable resource, and giving your siblings your undivided time and intention is a clear signal that you care about them. While giving tangible gifts is a thoughtful icebreaker, your siblings will still remember how they felt with you much more than anything you give them. Good or bad advice?
1: I'm going to say good advice. I don't know where this tangible gift as a thoughtful icebreaker idea comes from. (laughs) Yeah, I don't (laughs) really like that one either. But yeah, I think. In any relationship, one of the best things you can give, I guess if time is a thing, is your actual physical presence, your emotional presence, the ability to have a conversation that goes beyond, hey, how are you? So for me, calling them on the phone, taking your sibling out to dinner, establishing a one-on-one relationship, if you want to have a connection with your sibling, I think that's a great way to do it. Give them your time. It doesn't necessarily have to be on the phone or through a conversation. You can give people time in other ways. You know, like we talked about kins providing support. If you know, if you, know you're, you have a sibling who's really stressed out, going in taking care of kids for them is another way to show that give that valuable resource of your time so good advice
0: good advice
2: woods yeah, I agree. Good advice. I think this is investing in your relationship. My siblings and I were taught over and over when we were younger and then also when we weren't so young that your brothers and sisters are the longest relationship you have in your life. And for a lot of people, that's true yes. that they are there with you and your kids and hopefully they live just about as long as you do. And so my we had a really strong value in my family, or my mom did, and ensured that we all there was uptake. That we really needed to prioritize the health of those relationships, and that included spending time with our siblings because they would be there when the friendships we had at the moment may not be there forever for the long Mm. haul. And my siblings do this for me in the way that Jacob's describing that I've needed quite a bit of support in the last few months, and time and doing some of that instrumental support through spending time with either my family or my daughter, for example, has been just incredibly supportive. And and a real gift that I agree with the author is not something I
0: will forget, whereas I might forget thoughtful icebreakers. (laughs) (laughs) So a resounding good advice, time, dedicating time can show you care, but also potentially can really help repair relationships and ensure that those sibling relationships stay healthy throughout your adulthood. Thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or tweet us about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.